this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 1st, 2020, and this is show number 808. Well, we've got a super fun show today with some great listener contributions. Both Jill from the Northwoods and Rick Cartwright are back with some awesome reviews for us, and I will even manage to squeeze in between them with my own review. Well, this week, I had the great fun of being a guest on Clockwise, along with Renee Ritchie, with hosts Micah Sargent and Dan Morin. We talked about the surprising move by Apple to start building their own search engine, and whether we're open-minded to switching away from Google someday. We talked about our fear with full self-driving cars, which took kind of a turn for the worse, at least for me, when one member of the panel brought up the dilemma of a car choosing between a granny and a dog. You see, I love dogs, I have a dog, and I am a granny, so I didn't like that line of questioning at all. Finally, we turned to a discussion of what we think about Facebook's recent move to require users of their newest Oculus Rift to log in with a Facebook account. While some of these subjects sound like downers, we all had a great time, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing it as well. You can listen over at Relay.fm, episode number 370. Back in August of 2012, Don McAllister published the very first episode of Screencast Online magazine. His vision was to provide a magazine with articles by brilliant writers with impressive Apple-based knowledge, but also much more than that. The magazine also includes all of the full-length Screencast Online tutorials from the month and the tip videos published in the current month. This elegant combination allows you to subscribe to the magazine to get all of this content, or you could even pick and choose and only purchase the issues that you find of interest. You do get the tutorials later than the Screencast Online subscribers, but the tutorials are usually evergreen, so they don't get stale quickly. If you really want the best of both worlds, then you would want to subscribe to Screencast Online directly, and then you get the magazine for free. Now, it must be stated, I am 100% biased telling you how great Screencast Online and the magazine are, since I am both a writer for the magazine and I create video tutorials as well. The reason I'm telling you all of this right now, though, is that this week, Don published the 100th issue of Screencast Online magazine. And not only that, he made it free. And just for fun, he even made the first issue free as well. Now, that would be pretty awesome all by itself, but I'm even more excited that issue 100 contains my video tutorial on Logoist 4. Terry Austin turned me on to Logoist 3 a few years ago, and when Logoist 4 came out, I jumped on it. In this tutorial, instead of methodically marching through all of the commands and explaining them, I decided to do a more project-based tutorial. I chose this because I had just finished using Logos 4 to create the book cover art for the Taming the Terminal book. Subscribers had suggested to Don that more project-based tutorials would be helpful so they could see why you'd want to use a given tool. I had great fun demonstrating how I used the vast array of templates and modifications to those templates to create the vertical TTT title, add the font, change the colors, resize, and snap to grid, all using Logos 4. I even went on a side adventure where I explained how I was able to create the dark gradient on a background of ones and zeros, and even how I generated those ones and zeros themselves. I showed how I used layering and grouping and other techniques during the design. Going through the tool in this way allowed me to also pause my progress towards project completion and take a few minutes to explain and even quickly demonstrate some of the tools I didn't use to make this particular piece of art. Issue 100 also includes my first ever tip video for Screencast Online. These are three to eight minute long videos that teach just a little tip, you know, a little tiny how-to. I chose to do a quick update video about my favorite note-taking app, Notability. 
Since we'd done a full-length tutorial a while before, Notability was improved to include drawing real geometric shapes and even doing handwriting recognition. I had great fun making this little tip video on Notability updates. Now that you know you can get issues number one and 100 of Screencast Online Magazine for free, and how you can get my full Logos 4 tutorial and my Notability tip video all in the same issue for free, I suppose I should tell you how you get the Screencast Online Magazine. Go to the App Store for iOS and iPadOS and search for the free Screencast Online Magazine app. When you open the app, you'll see the magazine covers of all 100 issues and the free label on issues 1 and 100. I guess I should mention that there are also great written articles in the magazine by Lee Garrett, Wally Cherwinski, Wendy Cherwinski, Frank Petrie, Rosemary Orchard, Mike Schmitz, David Sparks, Chuck Joyner, and me. This month, it was actually kind of a testimonial month where we all talked about how much we love Don and how we met Don and how cool Don is. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a love fest there. And there's also a conversation between J.F. Brissett and uh, Don in text. So we've got a lot to look forward to even beyond the stuff that I contributed. Now, I want to close this off by giving my usual warning. You do not want to check out the free issue of Screencast Online any more than you want to use the free seven-day trial of Screencast Online itself because you will find yourself learning a lot and then wanting to keep subscribing. Don't blame me when you do. I gave you full warning. All right, let's get started with the show with a tip by Rick Cartwright. I don't know about you, but I love it when new technology and life collide to create amazing experiences. And then there are those magical moments when you find pure joy from a new shiny gadget. I am sure you've experienced this. One such experience for me was when I purchased and set up my first iPhone. Yes, that was a pure magical moment. I was on a business trip and stopped at the Mall of America. I went into the AT&T store to look at the new iPhone. It was the brand new iPhone 3GS. Keep in mind, prior to this moment, I was considering the purchase of an iPhone but had, not, had left home that morning for this business trip without any idea that an iPhone was on the agenda and it certainly was not in the budget. My good wife was about to be surprised. The sales associate walked up to me and informed me that his name was Moses and he was happy to help me. Yes, Moses. I still have his business card here somewhere. I figure I may need it someday. Moses told me I needed an iPhone, and who am I to argue with Moses? I didn't need 40 days and nights to complete that process. I left them all with, a, with my first iPhone. I phoned my wife and told her that Moses made me do it. She was not amused, but our marriage survived. Speaking of new technology, let's talk about Backtap, a cool new software technology in iOS 14. When I first heard about Backtap, I was instantly excited. This was, an early, this was in the early beta stages of iOS 14, maybe even during the 2020 version of Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. I remember seeing this tweet from Federico Battici. He wrote, iOS 14 has a new backtap feature in accessibility, and it's wild. He went on to describe the functionality briefly. I was excited to try it, but I had to wait a few weeks before I was willing to install the early versions of iOS 14 beta. I waited until beta 3 or beta 4 before I actually installed it on my iPhone. Before we go any further, what is Backtap? It is a new accessibility feature that enables tapping on the back of your iPhone to execute an action, such as opening Control Center, taking a screenshot, changing the volume on your audio, controlling various accessibility features, or executing any shortcut in your shortcut library. 
The ability to use any of your shortcuts makes this extremely powerful. I mean, heck, the sky's the limit, right? My first use of BackTap was trivial. I set up a new shortcut to toggle my iPhone flashlight on and off. When the shortcut was executed, the light toggles on. And then the next time it is executed, it turns the flashlight off. With that shortcut in place, the next step was to add it to BackTap so that double tapping on the back of the iPhone runs the shortcut. Well, while this is cool, does it really solve a real problem? I mean, maybe this is the case of technology for technology's sake. There are so many ways to turn the flashlight on and off. I can do it from the lock screen, or I can just press the flashlight icon on the home screen. It works. It can also do it from the control center. But with BackTap, there's this little issue of false triggers. What happens when I set the iPhone down or I bump it? Yes, it can trigger the action. I don't experience that often, but it does happen. The thing is, this double tap on the back of my iPhone works for me. It works really well, and I still use it. I use Face ID to unlock the iPhone, and then I double tap on the back, and it turns the light on. Then double tap again, and it turns the light off. I get up really early in the morning, and this is how I get around without killing myself as I wander around in the dark. Let's take a deeper dive and solve the real problem. I started to think about my, my August smart lock. I have my lock set up to auto lock two minutes after I unlock it. I really like to have the door locked before I leave, so I will often use the home app or access it from control center to lock the door. I wanted a quicker way to do this. Enter BackTap. The first step was to create the following shortcut to toggle my August lock. If it is locked, it will unlock it. If it is unlocked, it will lock it. You can access this short code in the post that goes with this audio and actually download the app, the uh, shortcut. If you get a message that says you have to allow sh untrusted shortcuts, you can do that in settings, shortcuts. If you, uh, you may also have to take the extra step of actually unlock, actually running a shortcut, and then it'll be unlocked and you can turn on the unlock function. The next step is actually to set up BackTap to execute this shortcut with iOS. This is so simple. You start by going into Settings, Accessibility, Touch, then BackTap. I select a triple tap for my new functionality. You have, a, have to scroll down past some of the other system functions that are available to the user. While you are here, scroll down slowly and look at all the cool things you can do with BackTap. There are a number of system functions that you can access without creating a shortcut. Then there is the accessibility features, gestures, then a list of all your shortcuts that are in your library. Scroll down and select Toggle Lock to use the new shortcut. This is what the list looks like, and you can find that in the show notes as well. Now that this is complete, I can unlock my iPhone, then tap on the back three times to unlock or lock the front door. It's great. A few days after I completed this shortcut, I started to think about security. What happens if my wife or I are out on a long hike and I generate one of those false triggers. Maybe I drop my iPhone in the car seat or something that looks like a triple tap. It is possible, I know because I have done it. I decided to take a make a small modification to the shortcut. Now it checks to make sure that I'm on a, I am on my home network before unlocking or locking the door. If you are interested in that modification, just contact me and I can share it. You will have to modify it to recognize your home network's name, SSID. Now it's your turn. Give BackTap a try and let me know what cool functionality you enable with this feature. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much, Rick. This is 
just the kind of thing, the way you've described it, that can kind of tickle somebody into wanting to get started with Apple shortcuts because they can see, you know, the immediate impact of having a shortcut and how they could trigger it with Backtap. I have tried to use it, and I did suffer the accidental triggering of Double Tap, so all I did was just switch the one I wanted to Triple Tap. It would be kind of cool to have two different ones, but just having one is really, really cool. So anyway, thanks again for a great review, Rick. I've been pondering doing a review of my favorite code editor for a long time, but for several reasons, this is a very dangerous undertaking. First and foremost, I am a very new programmer, so I don't really know what's important and why I should care about the more advanced features. This means that more advanced developers who read the article or hear the podcast and actually know what they're doing will be sure to mock me for the article. I'm sure I will miss fundamental features that I just don't know about or for which I don't understand the importance. But here's the good news. This will get them to write to me and say, well, actually, which will make them happy and will all learn something from them. Secondly, while I've worked with a half dozen code editors so far, I haven't got a lot of experience with them, so I'm likely to have missed a much better editor, or I've missed some features in an editor I did try that would have made me like them better. Thirdly, if that's a word, talking about a favorite code editor to developers is like saying you like Nikon better than Canon to photographers, or Macs better than PCs to geeks, or the Dodgers over the Red Sox to baseball fans. I mean, except that the Dodgers are better. Anyway, for certain, whatever I say will offend someone because they're like a, they like a different editor, right? Fourthly, in the months I've been procrastinating for the first three reasons, I've learned some extraordinary things about the editor I like the most, so if I'd done it weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to describe these features. If you're not a developer or don't even dream of being one, I think this article might be still be 63.8% interesting, because I think I can describe the problems to be solved in a way that might make sense to anyone. That's my goal, at least. Heck, you can write to me and say, well, actually, too, if I miss that mark. If I'm going to do a proper job of all of this, I should describe my requirements in a code editor. That is essentially the problem to be solved. When I first started poking at editors like Atom and CodeRunner, my requirements were pretty simple. I wanted to be able to open my code and see the results of changes in some sort of web interface. The $15 CodeRunner is really cool because it has its own built-in web engine, so it displays the code right in the same window. Over time, I started to feel very constrained by what was originally that advantage of CodeRunner. With tiny snippets of rendered pages, it was fine, but as the code and page got more complex, I, I really felt boxed in. Turning on the web inspector so I could poke at the interface to see if elements were what I thought they should be were crammed even more into the same window. I also found that I often needed to see two different areas in the same code, and you can't do that with CodeRunner. You get one copy of the code in the window, and you can't open it in a second window and scroll to a different place. Another way to solve the problem of long code is to have what's called code folding. That means folding up sections of the code you're not working on so you don't have to scroll around so much. I poked around in CodeRunner and I couldn't find that functionality, so I moved on. I tried Atom, which is free from atom.io, that's A-T-O-M, and I discovered that if I hovered to the left of a given function, a little downward chevron would appear and when tapped, would fold up that function of code. While Atom doesn't have a built-in web browser, it felt kind of freeing to have my code in one tool and the results of my changes in a separate web browser. I could open the web inspector in my browser and have plenty of room to stretch out. I also learned from Atom to add to my requirements the ability to open a project folder within the application. 
To be able to pop open files without navigating the finder each time added a lot of efficiency to working with Adam. I discovered through using Adam that there was one thing that drove me nuts. And maybe it's a dumb requirement, but you know what? It's my list of requirements, so I can put anything on it I want. I require a keystroke to make the code word wrap. I'm not sure who it is on this planet who can read code that scrolls off the screen, but it seems to be a default for many apps to do just that. With Adam, you have to take your hands off the keyboard and move to your pointed device and go all the way up to the view menu and select toggle soft wrap. I can hear you saying now that I could have added that keystroke using the keyboard system preferences app shortcuts to, to add my own keystroke, but you know what? I tried back then and I couldn't get it to work. I tried again while writing this up to make sure, and I realized why it didn't work. The keystrokes you assign in system preferences turn into characters in your code in Atom. For example, I used option Z to toggle soft wrap and then discovered Atom was typing the Greek letter omega every time I typed it, while also toggling soft wrap. So technically it was doing it, but I didn't really want those omegas in there. At this point in the plot, then, my requirements were that I could fold comments, open two copies of my files at the same time, and have a big enough space to work that I could view the rendered results of my code and the code itself without feeling cramped and be able to change to soft wrap with a keystroke. Now, as I learned more, my requirements list got much longer. Right around this time, Caleb Fong, also known as Geeko Supremo in our Slack, suggested I take a look at a code editor called VS Code. I found out later that the name is short for Visual Studio Code, and it's from Microsoft of all people. Now, my, my philosophy is I pretty much try whatever Caleb suggests because he finds the most interesting things. So I downloaded it for free from code.visualstudio.com. My first impression was that VS Code was a bit on the nerdy side of things, where Code Runner was more Mac-like. But since Code Runner didn't do what I liked, and Caleb said it was cool, I gave it a shot. VS Code immediately met my requirements of code folding in exactly the same method as Adam giving me a little chevron to toggle next to functions and other elements. I really took advantage of folding when our homework in our homework for programming by stealth, I had a ton of getters and setters, and I just wanted to be able to see the comments for them listed so I didn't have to scroll so much. I was kind of disappointed that when I saved my file, quit VS Code for the, no, for the night, and opened it up again the next morning, all of the code was unfolded again. Maybe there's a way to maintain the folds. If somebody knows about that, I'd sure like to know, but I haven't found it yet. Option Z, out of the box, toggles on soft wrap in VS Code just the way I like it. Again, can anybody explain why you'd want to you know, code to scroll off, off screen? Ever since I found out people don't like the caps lock key, I figure somebody likes these weird uh, defaults, but it is not me. I quickly discovered in VS Code that with a given file open, you could right-click on the tab for it and choose split right or left down or up and open a second copy of the file in the same window. Both versions of the file are in that same window, which might feel like you're getting cramped, but you can change the width of them with respect to each other, and you can scroll them independently, which is exactly what I wanted. So you could look at the top of the code in one, uh, one pane and the bottom of the code in another pane, and that helped me so much. I should mention that while writing this up, I discovered that Adam can split right too, but I wasn't knowledgeable enough to know I wanted that yet when I was using Adam. Many code editors do this, but with VS Code, I find the autofill of variable names and functions to be more likely to guess what I want to type. Adam seems to suggest the thing that anyone would be most likely to type, but VS Code suggests what Allison is most likely to type. For example, 
in Atom, in the same piece of code open, if I type CL, it suggests class. Now, that's a very logical guess, but that's not what I'm typing a lot right now. At this moment, I'm working in an array with an absurdly long name. I like my names that way so I can figure out what they are. The name of my, my array is Clock Attributes Array. And that's what VS Code suggests when I type CL, because it knows Allison. It knows what she wants to type. Like Adam, VS Code works by having you open a folder or project and then select your files to be edited from within the window. I didn't appreciate this when I was first working with Adam, but now it's the only way I want to work. Little things delight me with VS Code. Let's say I've got a variable I'm looking at and I want to find where else I might have used it. I copy the variable name and hit Command F to open it in the search window. Automatically, VS Code pastes my copied text into the search field and goes to town searching for it. I know that's a small thing, but it delights me every single time that I don't have to hit paste before searching. By the way, for the regular expression folks, VS Code lets you use them in search as well. Along the line of the way search works, if you highlight some text, like a variable name for example, every instance of that same text will be highlighted in your code. This can really help you scan for other usage of the same text, but it has even more valuable function. It tells me if the bug I'm hunting is a typo in the variable name or function name. So let's say I've got the function name written three times in the same section, and one doesn't highlight when the other one is selected, then I know there's a typo in the other one. After typos, the next bane of a developer's existence is unmatched brackets. You open parentheses, but you forget to, to close them. In VS Code, when you open a bracket, like round, square, or a squirrely bracket, or you open a quote, even the backtick kind, it is automatically put in as a pair in VS Code. Now, the other editors I've, try, uh, I've tried do that as well, but I didn't even notice this until VS Code. But VS Code has another trick that's even handier. I often have a bit of code that I've written, and then I realize I need to put some back brackets around it or some backticks. I can select the code first in VS Code and then hit a single bracket, and instead of erasing the code and replacing it with a bracket, it puts the brackets on either side of the code. The first time I did this accidentally, I flipped my lid. I had just checked Adam, and or I just checked Adam, and Adam does it too, but Code Runner doesn't. This is one of those little delights that makes coding so much more fun. Now I keep forgetting to use this trick in VS Code. I know about it, but I keep forgetting about it, but this is really cool. I sometimes come up with a variable name that turns out not to mean what I was thinking when I thought it up originally. I then have to painstakingly go through the code and find every spot I used it and change it. Now I could use search and replace, but there's a more elegant way in VS Code. First, you select the name that you want to change and hit F2. Up pops a little window where you can change the variable name and it changes all of the instances of that variable at once. Not only is this an elegant method, but it's also a much less error-prone method for changing the name. Now, the real power of VS Code is the extensions. Like WordPress is to the web with zillions of plugins to do whatever you want, Visual Code has an open API and people have written all kinds of tools to extend its capabilities. I learned a lot about extensions and how to use them from Helma when we were working on our Taming the Terminal book. Installing and uninstalling its extensions is super easy. You search inside the VS Code sidebar for extensions, select one that seems good, and you can read the documentation from within VS Code. If it looks good, click Install. If it's not what you're hoping for, you select it under your installed extensions and click Uninstall. It takes literally seconds. As you may recall, Helma did most of the creation of the book using something called ASCII Doc. 
She showed me a plugin for VS Code that would interpret a file written in ASCII doc and then display it in a second pane as it would be rendered. This gave me a clean way to proofread a chapter of the book and yet have the full code right next to it for editing. The plugin's full name is called ASCIIDoctor.ASCIIDoctor-VSCode, and it has 61,000 downloads and five stars. Now, I have to admit that I've installed extensions into VS Code that I think are probably super useful, but I either don't understand how to use them yet, or I haven't figured out how to configure them, or sometimes I'm just too chicken to try them. I've installed them, and I'm chicken to use them. In the list of ones I don't understand, I'd have to put the entire category of linters, from what I understand, linters help clean up your code to make it more consistent. Things like getting indent indentations set the same for different levels of code would be an example. While I understand their purpose, and I definitely need this feature, I've installed one called ESLint from dbummer.vscode-eslint, which has 11 million downloads and four and a half stars. I don't know what to do with it. I need to spend some time reading, or if someone would like to volunteer to spoon feed me on it, that would be great. In the category of Too Chicken to Try, I have two plugins that are supposed to give me Git version control. In Programming by Stealth, we've just started to learn about version control and specifically how to use Git from the command line. And I have two Git graphical user interface applications that I sort of know how to use, but I want to get up my nerve to try one of these plugins because it sounds nerdy and fun. But I'm chicken. I know, the whole trick of version control is you could always roll back so I wouldn't lose anything, but I am still chicken. Another extension I installed but I haven't used yet is for a service called Glitch. This service allows you to upload all of the different files for your web app and render them. Not only can I show someone how my code renders, but I can also show the raw code to people like Dorothy and Bart when I need help with my code, and Helma. They can even fork the code and mess with it themselves to see if they can fix it. There's an extension for Glitch in VS Code, and I have it installed, and I haven't yet played with that one either. I've been fairly autonomous on my writing my code lately, but it probably would help Dorothy if I figured out how to use it. Now, you're probably getting tired of me telling you about the extensions I'm too chicken to use yet, so let's finish with one I'm super excited about and which I'm actually using. Here's the problem to be solved. You're plugging away on your code and you find something you need to fix, but you don't want to get distracted from something else you were working on. How do you remind yourself to go back and fix that thing you found? You can keep a log somewhere of things to fix where you reference the problem by line number and description, but you know, inevitably, line numbers are going to change as you make changes in the code, so you're not going to be able to find it. You can also make a comment in the code outlining the problem, which might work, but good code has so many comments in it that you might not notice it, even if you write in all caps trying to scream at yourself. I've tried using a bunch of stars or exclamation points, but it's not loud enough. I can't see it. I scroll right past it. I noticed that some comments Bart made in his code lit up in bright green, so I started using that format. I got all excited with the way he had formatted it, but it turned out it was lit up because that syntax was only for documentation. Imagine my delight when Helma told me about a whole category of extensions for VS Code just for syn syntax highlighting of to-dos. The one I've chosen is called to-do free from gruntfugly.todo-tree. This extension is so cool. In VS Code, you have a settings file that's a plain old JSON text file. And when you install to-do tree, it adds some configuration lines to that file. This configuration tells VS Code how to color the keywords you choose. For example, by default, to-do tree adds the tag to-do in all cap letters and adds a setting for the foreground to be gray and the background to be yellow. Now, if you type a comment and in the comment you type the word to-do in all caps, 
It will be gray text on a yellow background, making it stand out in your code so you can't possibly mix it, miss it. You can change the configuration settings to make the colors be what works well with the theme you've chosen in VS Code. Helma and I are big fans of light themes, while Bart loves a dark theme, so it's great that you can tailor this to exactly what you want. I've added a few more tags to the configuration file, so I can't remember which ones were there by default, but I have one called Fix Me in all capital letters that is bright pink, and another one called Idea that's white text on green, and Alert, which is all red. Now, let's say you have your to-do color highlighted, but you've got lots of code, so you could still miss it. To-do tree has another big trick up its sleeve. In the left sidebar, there's a little icon of a tree with a check mark in it. This reveals every one of the instances of any of the tags you've applied and the rest of the text you put in the comment. You basically have that list of action items you would have had to write by hand, but with this list, when you select a to-do or fix me or idea, it takes you right to that spot in the code. It is awesome. But there's more. To-do tree lets you add an icon and even color it. So by default, the tag bug has a little icon of a bug. Now, obviously, you'd want a check mark for to-dos, and I added a question mark for idea and a flame for what I call fix me. The documentation is great for to-do, which you can tell because I figured it out and I had fun with it. All right, all you developers tell me everything I missed, all the things I got wrong, and how your favorite code editor is way better than my favorite. Oh, I should mention, Adam has extensions too. I'm happy with VS Code, and I'm learning more every day about how to make it work even better for me. If you've got a favorite extension for VS Code that you think I'd enjoy, or maybe some clues on how to use the ones I'm afraid to try, I'd love to hear about those too. Hi, this is Jill from the North Woods. Today we're going to talk about diary apps or journaling apps, however you like to call it. There are some really good journaling apps out there in the world, particularly when you're talking about the iOS world. I started with day one back in 2011 when it was released, almost day one, so to speak. I've always wanted to be more serious about journaling than I have, and day one really got me to that point where I could start doing it because it was on my phone and my phone is with me all the time. I tried journaling back when I was a kid with all my 12-year-old angst. I talked about how that boy in class, well, he didn't like me and why was I the only girl who read Scientific American? I have given up on any desire to do any sort of a diary like that. When you think about diaries, that's what comes to mind. Honestly, there are a lot of purposes for journals. So I don't want you to roll your eyes when you think about journaling and you hear about all the different trends of emotional journals or gratitude journals. There are a lot of reasons to have a journal. You could write a book journal, which reviewed every book that you read, or a Bible or prayer journal, some type of spiritual journal, a photo log. So your favorite photo of the day could be captured in this journal and you could reflect back on it. There's also the health and exercise, pregnancy kinds of journals. So you can keep track of how you feel each day, what worked, what didn't work. Social media collections, you know, so you have a place to gather all your social media posts into one place. Goals and productivity is another reason why you might want to have a journal. Some people have a work journal, hobbies journal. I keep a personal quotes journal where I keep all the quotes that I really like to have. Some like to keep reviews they write in a journal format. 
whether it be restaurants, I saw one for beer and another for whiskeys. Don't think of journaling in that same sense that I think we've always thought about Dear Diary. Think about it in the sense of being able to record your time or your experiences. One thing that it's done for me over the course of this pandemic is it gave me some perspective when it came to traveling for work. I travel a lot for work and I'm gone from my house about 25% of the time. But since I've been home, I've really thought I've enjoyed being at home. And what if I don't like traveling as much as I think I do? While reflecting in my day one journal, which again is not an emotional journal, but more like a what did I do today kind of thing, I've been able to look at all the amazing experiences I had while traveling for work. I've gone to baseball games and football games and Disney World. I have gone to New York City and seen two Broadway shows. Things that normally would be expensive vacations or big experiences, like going to the Olympic National Forest for a weekend, were easy for me because I travel for work. And I've met amazing people, too. Because I gained perspective from my journaling app, it helped me realize that I like traveling for work a lot more than I seem to remember that I do. Sometimes it's easy to think back about all the missed flights and weird hotel experiences. This journaling helped me to have a better picture about something that was giving me a negative opinion. So I'm going to talk about three different kinds of journaling apps, and maybe one of them would be something that would fit you. First one is the big one, which is the day one journal. It has been around since 2011, and I joined them quickly after they became an app. I've been using them very sporadically for a long time, and it's really pretty funny. It is really the most comprehensive journal out there. When you have a company that is just focused on one thing, and they take deep consideration about what their user base wants in a diary, it becomes amazing. And so the first thing to talk about is that it has end-to-end encryption and passcodes. Security is a big deal, particularly if you want to have a journal. As a 12-year-old girl, I had a diary with this fake padlock on it that any pen could open. That doesn't work for security. Do you think I could trust that anything I wrote in there would be private? I ended up burning that thing because it was just horrible. But this you can feel rest assured that there's a lot of security built into it. There's also methods of backing up your data. You can also export it in a PDF or get fancy books printed from it. It's really amazing where day one has come with their software from the very beginning. It was always good. Now it's so much better. The one thing to keep in mind if you do get started with day one is the end-to-end encryption is not turned on by default. Also, if you lose your key, you will not be able to decrypt your diary at all. All you can do is recover data that is stored in iCloud or restored from another location. So when it comes to features, we could go on this entire podcast talking about all the features that Day One has, and they have just so many. I'm just going to cover a few that I thought were pretty important. First of all, besides the fact that you can write entries and text, And you can also do video and audio. It'll do audio transcription. There's so many ways to get a journal entry into the system. But there's also templates in there. And the templates have prompt questions. 
So it comes with a few of them, but you could write your own. I wrote one to encapsulate what I thought was going wrong with my sleeping. I talked about the sleep tracking a while ago. This was more of a paragraph that just described my night of sleep and why I was having such troubles. Also, I have really wild dreams and I write those down as well. So I created a template that allows me to track these very questions that I'm looking for. You can also set notifications based on your template so that every morning I'm supposed to fill out my morning one. At the end of every workday, I can fill out a work journal. So the reminders are fantastic in a way of remembering just to go ahead and fill out these templates or any entry in your notebook. There's also a really great feature where it says on this day, and it'll show you what you did a year ago. I just saw it the other day, and it said a year ago, we had a couple of inches of snow. I was really excited about that. So I really just enjoy what this does to bring me back to, to previous entries and remind myself of the past. You can also use Apple Shortcuts to create day one entries. It sounds from people who do this that it might be a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. The phone app is very easy to use to get photos, speech, video into your diary. It understands fundamentally that this is a portable diary. It also has an Apple Watch app, so it also can help you get audio or text version of your entry into your diary from your watch. Then there's also a Mac version of the app, which is great. It has a bigger view, a little bit better filtering that goes on, some more room, at least landscape, so that you can see the entries better. One of the reasons I was really excited to get a MacBook is that it would give me the full power of day one. Like I said, I've been using it for almost nine years, and this ability to clean up some of it and organize it a little bit better was just really neat for me. It does have integration with Instagram, but also if this, then that, which will allow you to create anything that if this, then that can pull in and put into your journal. Again, it can do uh, dictation and transcription. There's now a widget for iOS 14. It does markdown and integrates with Text Expander on iOS. It also syncs across all devices. It's really just great. I can't think of a lot of things that I would love in a diary application or a journaling application that day one doesn't have. There are premium accounts that are needed if you want some of the more advanced features. You'll need a premium subscription if you want to do backups, syncs, multiple journals, multiple photos per entry, video and audio recordings, embedded PDFs, scanning, drawing, automatic entries from Instagram, and health data app. There's a lot of really good things in that premium account, which comes in at $35 a year. This is where people really complain about the app more than anything else. The app is available on iOS, Apple Watch, and Mac. The app is free. More information is available on their website in the blog notes. The second app I want to talk about is called Memento. And I also got started with this app a long time ago, probably in 2011, when they also came out. And it was interesting because back in the day, it was more like having your own personal Twitter feed. It wasn't really meant to have these big entries with lots of details and different things you could do. 
It was really meant that I want to just get in there, write a few quick short sentences, add a photo maybe, and be done with it. But over the course of years, they've really grown into a much bigger project. They first started getting involved with integrations so that you can integrate this with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Flickr, YouTube, Spotify, Medium, Uber, Goodreads, and web RSS feeds. There is no Mac application for Memento. It is only really meant to be on the iPhone and the Apple Watch. It does have a lot of the same features that you would expect in day one, where you can put an entry in, you can record some audio, you can put some video in, and basically tag some of these entries. And the subscription gets you more than one journal or feed, you can put more than one photo per entry, and you get a plain text export and a little bit of formatting, bold and italics when it comes to the main entries. The subscription is $4 for a month or about $17 for a year. Again, it's a good app, and I think that if you are someone who's more heavily involved in social media and really want to aggregate all that social media data into a journal, and that's important to you, Memento is really the way to go. And you can do these things without using if this or that integration. Find out more at MementoApp.com. The last app is called Mood Notes. And this one is interesting. It's the only app that's been reviewed by the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. It is considered to be a cognitive behavior therapy device. And it was written for that purpose of trying to help people figure out where some of their emotions are coming from. There is an iOS app and an Apple Watch app, and there's iCloud Sync Backup. It seems like it's too much to do these journaling applications. Mood Note is about picking a mood. Very, very simple. That's all you really basically have to do. Right now, I'm awesome. Right now, I'm okay. Right now, I'm terrible. The journaling just involves, at that point, selecting the mood. You can stop right there. But if you really want to, you can go on and start including things like, why do you feel that way? What exactly is this mood about? Then it can go on to give you some tagged words that go along with the mood that you picked. Can you expound on that? What were you doing? Were you at home? Were you with friends? Were you lonely? Were you ecstatic? Are you grateful? Try to explain exactly what your mood means with some additional words and some additional tags. Once you've tagged this mood, then there's just some bars on there that you can in increase the intensity of it. If you're saying you feel awesome today and you say that's because you were hanging out with friends, then you could go into the individual pieces of it and say, it's because I'm just so grateful for my friends. It's also because we had a lot of fun. And you can start going ahead, scaling all the individual feelings that you're having if you want to. Then you can go on beyond that. If the mood was negative, it also gives some common traps that lead to negative emotions, like blaming other people or having all or nothing thinking. And if you have a bad mood, you can go ahead and start listing which of the traps you might have fallen into. This tool 
is not just to record your mood, which you could absolutely just do because you want to see, am I having a happy day or a sad day or a happy moment or a good afternoon or a bad afternoon? It is also meant to be a tool for someone who's having some bad moods to be able to figure out what's really going on. Am I upset at work, but happy when I get home? Maybe it's the other way around. These charts are there so that you can help identify those moods, figure out when they're happening, and then again, using these traps of thinking to try to help you figure out what it is that's happening. Once you start accumulating data, then they have something they call a mood pie. And the mood pie is just a pie chart with all the different moods. So 70% of the time you're happy, 5% of the time you're terrible, but it just gives you a good oversight into what your daily moods are like. Then there's some advanced statistics on another tab that shows you bar graphs of each of the individual moods and how much they played a part of your day. Find out more at their website, which is linked in the blog. There's another app that we won't review, but is similar called Dailyo. It has the same functionality with moods and charts and tags, but is more for journaling and not clinical use. You can find out more about it in the App Store, Dailyo, D-A-Y-L-I-O. These are three different apps for three different use cases. I think that journaling, whether you're doing it on an emotional side of things or just doing it on an event type of basis or just having a place to aggregate all your social media is a really great way to do things. I've really enjoyed the journals I've created and I was really excited to be able to look at them in the MacBook. I think after this review, I'm actually going to expand the journals I do and start having a photo diary as well. I hope you enjoyed it. Just remember to stay subscribed, enjoy the podcast, and tell your friends about it. Thanks so much. I tell you, I think this is my favorite review you've done so far for the show, Jill. I love especially how you teed it up by explaining that you're not talking about the 12-year-old teenage girl angst kind of journals here. You could actually hear you smiling while you were talking about that part. To everyone else, if you like Jill's reviews, I can highly recommend that you check out her podcast. It's called Start With Small Steps. It's a podcast for real people who want to make change, but don't know how to start. In her About section of her website, she explains it more. She says, if you feel like positive change is overwhelming or elusive, or building the life you want seems far away, I will help you create easy and practical steps towards success. If you don't have time to sift through thousands of hours of podcasts, hundreds of books, or centuries of advice, let me do it for you. Like our articles for the NoSillaCast, Starts With Small Steps podcast isn't preachy. It's filled with delightful examples from Jill's own life that she weaves into the explanation of the books she's read to help make the small changes that have had a big effect. I really enjoy it, and maybe you would too. You can find Start With Small Steps podcast in your podcatcher of choice, or you can go to her website at smallstepspod.com. Hey, when you do it, tell her Allison sent you. Well, that's actually going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. If you want to become a patron, go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to give a one-time donation? You can go to podfeed.com slash PayPal. Want to join our community? There's two ways to do that. If you like uh, Facebook, you can go to podfeed.com slash Facebook. Or if you hate Facebook or you just like more fun people to talk to, go to podfeed.com slash Slack. 
And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Daniel Semro did after being gone for a while, just head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. We missed you, Kevin. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.